If I was to quickly ask you, what is organic gardening? You might squint a little and say something along the lines of, uh, well, I, I, I don't use chemicals in the garden. Well, that wouldn't be right. Uh, water is a chemical. There's a lot of chemicals. There are chemicals used in organic gardening. But it's interesting, if you go online and search for a definition of organic gardening, it, it does run the gamut. University of Massachusetts, for one, says even among those claiming to be organic gardeners as to exactly what constitutes organic gardening it differs. In general, organic gardening differs from traditional gardening in two important ways, use of agricultural chemicals and use of artificial or processed fertilizers. They don't say exactly what agricultural chemicals are. All right, so there's a question. Then uh, UC Davis, their sustainable ag program, states that organic agriculture is the practice of growing, raising, or processing goods using methods that avoid the use of most synthetic pesticides and fertilizers, as well as bioengineering, ionizing radiation, and sewage sludge. All right, well, now we're starting to narrow down this definition of organic gardening. And then you go to the University of Georgia, and they say that a generally accepted definition of organic gardening is the use of cultural practices to improve soil and plant health in order to reduce plant problems without the use of synthetic fertilizers and pesticides. Well, this is becoming very interesting. So we turn to the Royal Horticultural Society in jolly old England, and they say organic gardening is commonly used to describe cultivation systems which make minimal use of manufactured chemical substances. These are practical elements of a broader philosophy which takes a holistic view of gardening, emphasizing the interdependence of life forms. And then we have the thoughts of a man we had as a guest about a month ago or so who we were discussing phosphorus and maybe some of the dangers or cautions one should employ if you're using phosphorus fertilizers. It was Robert Couric, and I had asked him about the manufacturing of phosphorus, and I asked him, well, is that process that makes it, in your estimation, not organic, even though phosphorus fertilizer is considered organic? And he said, I like to think of it as the cradle-to-grave review of organics. Well, that needed some expansion, shall we say. So back for his expansion time is Robert Couric, author of the book Sustainable Food Gardens, as well as many other great garden tomes. Sustainable Food Gardens, Myths and Solutions by Robert Couric is really a compendium of many of the books he has written in the past. And so this question has been bugging me on my bike rides for the last few weeks, Robert, as I'm going down the trail and I'm thinking, well... Cradle to grave organics, that takes in a lot of things. And you had mentioned in our interview about phosphorus, about what it takes to manufacture the phosphorus that you put on as fertilizer. Uh, you're putting it on a trailer truck, a bulk that only 3% of which is what you want to have. And when you put down that phosphate, 3% of the sack, less than half of that might be available the first season. The trucking costs and the carbon footprint are Phenomenal. Ah, the carbon footprint of gardening, I think, is what we're getting into here. Robert Couric, where am I going with this? <laughs> What's going on? Uh, well, I'm glad to hear I have an influence on your bicycling. Yes. 
<laughs> well, the, the way I did one of the parts of organic gardening is what I call full cycle ecosystem. In other words, uh, as little external inputs as possible, which is and as much harvest as possible. In other words, um, if you have an organic garden and you truck everything in from five miles away and you buy bone meal and you buy blood meal and you buy phosphate fertilizer, et cetera, et cetera, you have a tremendous amount of inputs coming from near or far that don't reflect what would naturally happen if you weren't bringing in that nutrition and those products and such. So that uh, trying to keep it closed loop as much as possible. So when I talk about cradle to grave, I mean, let's look at it, what it costs to produce, how it's produced, what it takes to truck it around, what do you get out of it, and what are the alternatives that you could use in your own garden to take care of it yourself. In other words, you can grow an awful lot of the NPK uh, needs that your garden has. How does what you're talking about differ from permaculture? Well, permaculture and what I've been doing for 40 years are pretty similar in a lot of ways. Permaculture, originally the book was called uh, Permaculture because of Permanent Agriculture. So initially it was designated as a farming alternative, uh, but it's since been uh, mutated or co-opted or changed to be applied to home gardening as well. They pretty much believe, I think, in a similar uh, context of having as much internal nutrients, let's say, as opposed to bringing in uh, rotten manure from five miles down the road. I don't think there's that big of a difference. What they're basing it on and where are they getting their their data to substantiate what they're talking about? According to Permaculture News, uh, the definition, their definition of permaculture is the conscious design and maintenance of agriculturally productive ecosystems, which have the diversity, stability and resilience of natural ecosystems. But then, like you mentioned, they have some other interesting uh, beliefs and practices that you wonder where the science is behind that. Yes. A lot of it, when it's adapted to the home scale, loses a lot in translation. The original books, the concept of Bill Mollison was as an alternative to farming. That book came out in 1978, the Permaculture One, and there's been no test since then to compare the costs, labor, what have you, of permaculture versus conventional farming. So it has a lot to be desired as far as the data to back up what they propose. Yeah, this is a concept that goes back to the 60s and 70s. If you're old enough to remember bumper stickers, uh, the old Ecology Now bumper sticker of a sort of a green circle, of sort of a flattened green circle and uh, creating ecosystems. And this just sort of expands upon that. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, uh, in 19, was it 1970, I made the flag for our high school for the ecology flag with uh, green and white stripes with that circle where the stars would normally be. So I've been involved with ecology for a while. But basically, <clears throat> I tend to pr promote as much internal use of nutrients as opposed to ex external inputs. The difference being that it takes more surface area to do that 
in that you need to have a certain amount of area reserved to grow your nutrients. In other words, uh, growing a legume to improve the nitrogen content of your soil. And then the following year, planting something like corn, which likes a lot of nitrogen, into that area where the legumes grew. So sometimes it might take up to a quarter of your garden area designated to growing the green manure cover crop that's going to provide the nutrients without having to import them. Everybody should own an acre. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, the difficulty is uh, how much scale is that involved? Well, one of the models I use uh, in my book I have in the appendix, a long discussion of vegan gardening in uh, England. And because they don't believe in the use of manures, they have to grow their own. And so they use a fallow, a cover crop, or a green manure, or all three, to improve the soil nutrient content before they plant the food crop into that area. And they're able to do it in pretty small areas, but it does increase the surface area by about at least a quarter, 25%. But it's a matter of how much area you have to be able to do that. As you pointed out when you were talking about phosphorus, the idea of the energy it takes to manufacture the product, the the carbon footprint of delivering that product is rather astounding. And you found out amazing things like about blood meal. Yeah. Yeah. I decided to look at a lot of uh, nutrients and blood meal is one that is very commonly used for high nitrogen situations and so something like corn, but uh, it's made by taking the blood at 180 to 200 degrees over three hours, then keeping it at boiling temperature for seven hours, and then drying it to 12% of moisture, and all that takes the equivalent of 8,800,000 watt hours, which I compute to be 150,060 watt bulbs. That's a fair amount of energy. <laughs> I'm thinking of how bad that would smell, being that it's boiled for so long. Yeah, really. <laughs> well, I grew up in St. Louis, and the cattle yards were still down in downtown St. Louis. And we would drive by them, and you could smell it. That was for sure. So should we be rethinking how we define organic gardening? Well, I, I would like to expand the definition to include the what I call cradle-to-grave approach because we use it with so many other items in our shelves and our cupboards and elsewhere. But why not apply it to how we grow food? And, well, we should. And uh, the idea of having a sustainable garden, as you point out, is achievable. But if, if you have a small yard, you just might have to cut down the amount of crops that you grow on a yearly basis in order to be replenishing the soil as well. Yes. Yes. Now, as one example, tomatoes as a crop take about 150 pounds per acre of nitrogen to be healthy. Well, if you grow white clover, you get about 100, 150 pounds of nitrogen per acre from growing that clover, that uh, legume. So that two ounces of nitrogen in every 100 square feet from white clover pretty much matches what tomatoes like. So it's not too bad. Uh, it, it can be scaled down quite a bit. 
Yeah, this is where the individual's interpretation of organic gardening and how you want to define it would uh, come to pass. Because, okay, let, let's grow a cover crop of, of, say, white clover. All right, you're going to buy white clover seed. Where did that white clover seed come from? Oh, probably China or someplace overseas. Right. <laughs> right. Who knows? That's a, Yeah, but it is, a, in other words, um, a pound of clover seed covers a tremendous amount of area so it doesn't take much clover seed to take care of 100 square feet we get uh, have local seed companies forest there's enough agriculture still left in sonoma county that there's a seed company all they sell is uh, cover crop seed and wildflower seed can you save your own clover seeds can you save your own cover crop seeds well, I don't know about clover. That's pretty tedious because it's such a small seed. Yes. But fava beans, I say my uh, fava beans. And I, I grow the crimson fava bean because it's a super hot red, one of the best red flowering plants I know of. But you have to grow only crimson so it doesn't cross with a white fava bean. And you have to then save your seed from year to year. But they're such big seeds, it's, it's very easy to uh, harvest the seed and carry it over. Now, as you know, you're, you'd be working that um, fava bean plant back into the soil to improve it. But you want to add it in before the plant starts fully flowering because flowering takes away some of that nitrogen. Yeah. So that the best time for nitrogen in the soil is to turn in the plant or cut it down just as it begins to bloom so that all the nodules are still in the soil. Uh, if you let it go to bloom, the nodules are sending their nitrogen up into the plant to set seed. And so the plant is relocating the nitrogen from the root system to the seed pod. Under the ideal circumstance, you can't have the flower and the nitrogen at the same time. Can cover crops work in a no-till system? Yes, very much so. But you would cut the cover crop and uh, use it as a mulch or put it in a compost pile. One of the things they do in England is they grow fava beans, then they cut down the fava beans and plant potatoes right on top of the stubble uh, and then mulch it deeply like uh, you often do with uh, potatoes. So you get the use of the nitrogen from the soil, but you don't have to do the, any of the digging. Yes, which is uh, another uh, popular uh, pastime developed by another uh, Sonoma County gentleman, John Jevons, uh, way back yeah. when in 1970, who thought that right. double, double digging was the answer to uh, soil health. Right, exactly. And he uh, double digs forever, whereas uh, some friends of mine, they double dug for years and then they realized, well, I don't need to keep digging. It's, the soil is incredible. I can plow it with my hands. I don't need to be using a spading fork. I believe you can make the transition from tillage to no-till, but you might do an interim period where you do double digger intensively, cultivate for one to five years, let's say, until you get your soil tilth up to a nice uh, standard so that uh, you can transplant into it and things don't get too blown away. The roots don't get too much of a shock. That means you have to buy gas for your rototiller. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I don't think they make rechargeable rototillers yet. No, not that I know. <laughs> Troy built with batteries. <laughs> 
Well, you know, if, if you're starting a new garden from soil that's never had, had a garden before, what you're recommending makes perfect sense as far as uh, in, increasing, if you will, the tilth of that soil before you plant and maybe doing it for a few years first. Yeah, I don't belong to a religion of gardening. Some people say you should till the entire life of the garden. Other people say you should never till starting day one. I think you can do transitions and use any number of techniques with the goal being moving towards no-till gardening, but taking some time to get there. Like My first book, Edible Landscaping, in 1986, there's an entire chapter on no-till gardening, but it took a while for people to get interested in the approach, but I still talk about tillage and no-till whenever I talk about gardening because they both go hand in hand. I've I've seen a lot of people around here try to do no-till day one in a clay soil. They get nowhere. Uh, It's a problem. Exactly. You have to loosen up that soil first. And frankly, if if you're mulching it and just letting that mulch get washed into the soil with winter rains and do that year after year, you're going to have better soil. Yes, exactly. So that mulch is a good way to do it, but it takes longer than cultivation. So that I would prefer to start with cultivation, heavily mulch the plants, and then continue with mulching and a few years of cultivation, and then try working towards no-till. One of the local growers is so famous in our county for his no-till farm, purchases a phenomenal amount of compost. Uh, There's no way his farm could ever come close to making enough compost to satisfy the needs of uh, him transplanting from his greenhouse to his farm. So you can compensate with compost, but he's buying it all. You know, he's not making it. It's another example of, well, it looks good on paper, but what's the full cradle-grave approach to that farm if you're applying four to six inches of compost every year? Well, that brings up another nasty ball of wax, and that has to do with purchasing compost and the source of that compost and what exactly is in that compost. There are municipal composts that are available for free, but you don't really know what's in it. And if it has lawn clippings that have been treated with uh, a weed and feed product, there could be herbicides that could last for years in that compost. Yes, it's a problem. One of our local compost companies, they test loads that come in for that chemical. So they're doing a pre-screening. And then, of course, they they shred up an awful lot of shrubbery, so to speak, uh, to generate uh, the compost. One of the things that you can have, if you don't compost thoroughly, willow sticks will start to sprout on you. So you got to worry about seeds and sticks and what have you. If you get a walnut tree, you can actually suppress the growth of a lot of plants. Uh, tomatoes are a good example. Um, so you don't want to have a compost made with uh, walnut shreddings. But normally in our area, at least, walnuts are not very common. So it's sort of like the dilution factor if there's a walnut tree in the mix, it gets diluted by all the other shrubbery that's uh, shredded up. And the other answer, too, is to let that pile sit for a year or two. Yes. I tell all my people, buy your compost in September and moisten and make sure it's moist. Cover it with a tarp so the winter rains don't 
leach the nitrogen out and use it maybe in the spring or maybe a full year later. But the advantage to buying the compost in September is there's no competition, but a good gardener would plan in advance and get at least September, if not uh, April for the following April so that it ages when if the pile comes from the from the producer that's steaming if you see steam or feel a lot of heat it's nowhere near done it needs to age more yeah people tend to forget that mother nature is slow yeah (laughs) you have to have a lot of patience yeah patience is a big part of the equation so I guess if if you're an organic gardener or you call yourself an organic gardener or you want to be an organic gardener, you're going to have to draw your own lines as far as what you mean by organic. Yes. Usually it's the synthetic form of uh, fertilizers or pesticides. Yeah. And then if you get into the idea of using animal manures uh, as part of your organic gardening regimen, how have you been treating your animals? Are they getting vaccinations? Are they uh, what are they eating? Are they eating pasture land that's been treated with post-emergent herbicides? There's a lot of questions you have to ask, which is I, I go back to, to telling people, try to own an acre so you can have some animals. Right. <laughs> well, there's one interesting thing I've been trying to figure out for for years. I have two friends who once they brought in horse manure to make compost had no worms and i had um, rice hulls as a mulch in my garden in occidental with the horse manure mixed in not a lot of it but some and i had no worms in uh, occidental so i researched the the major most commonly used uh, wormicide and they claim that it, it uh, dissipates in the soil in a short period of time but we're seeing the case where gardeners with horse manure are having problems with maintaining their fertility using worms because there are none. Because their horses are being treated with a worm worm agent. That's, that's what I think, yes. We found a place back in the 80s that was an organic veterinarian, and they fed the animals uh, organic feed, and they had... Uh, uh, organic uh, straw for them to sleep on. So that was pretty kosher, but they still used uh, wormicide. Kosher in a interesting way, yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, yeah, uh, it's uh, I, I, maybe one solution might be uh, don't use fresh manure. Again, put it in a compost pile and let it sit for several months. Yes, exactly. Temperate and kind of rough, takes care of smoothing all the rough edges. Cradle to grave organics. Well, there's a concept you can wrap your head around. Uh, if you want more information about that and ideas that you can have your own sustainable food garden, hey, there's a book by that title called Sustainable Food Gardens. It's by Robert Couric, K-O-U-R-I-K, and I bet it's available at his website. Yep, robertcouric.com. Robert Couric with no gap. No space and K O U R I K. There you go, and, and he's got several other books there. When you go to his website, I've always liked your book on drip irrigation for one. Yep, still a bestseller. All right, what are some of the other titles? Uh, Lazy ass gardening, one of my favorites, and then two books on roots. But uh, roots demystified is out of print, 
but understanding roots is a more ambitious treatment of root systems, and that's still in print. And then my edible landscaping book from 1986 is still in print. And you can find a lot of information from all those books in his latest, Sustainable Food Gardens by Robert Couric. Check it out. Robert Couric, thanks for explaining cradle-to-grave organic gardening for us. Thanks, Fred. I really enjoyed it.